mega was that? Who wants to see it again? It was awesome. Now it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I've got three young kids, so I don't usually come to the groovy 6 p.m. service. I usually come along to the uh, 8.15 or the 10 o'clock, so it's awesome to be in the house of God on a Sunday night with such good-looking people. Yeah, how good was that worship? So good. So it's great to be here. Thank you very much to uh, C3 for inviting me up here. Um, I love speaking at church because I get to speak about myself over and over and over again. And you get to partner in with that beautiful story about myself, my most important topic, with the Lord and what he's done in my life. So it's a great privilege and I'm very humbled to be able to speak to you tonight about my life story and uh, be here at C3. So thank you very much. Also, thank you very much to Pastor John and Danielle for not being here, not occupying the stage, so I can have a go. I'm sure they're uh, having a fantastic holiday and a, and a big break because they've got a lot of preaching ahead of them in the months to come, coming up to Easter and everywhere around. So it's just great to be on stage with you tonight. And uh, I guess I want to start with my story because my story started a long time ago. Thanks, guys. All good? Yep. Long time ago in, um, in a beautiful tropical and exotic place called Rockhampton. Who's from Rocky? Anybody from Rocky here? Anyone going to admit it? <laughs> Just you and me, brother. Just you and me. We'll hug it out later. But um, Rockhampton is one of those amazing sporting towns where everything just revolves around sport. And my journey towards that moment started in the library in year two at Allenstown State School yeah, at Dawson Road when we all got taken down to the library to see a 16-year-old Australian named Steve Holland go in the 1976 Montreal Olympic Games in the 1500 metres freestyle. He was 16 years of age. He'd broken the world record 16 times in that year. He'd taken it down a minute from the time he was 15 to 16. From, 16, from, 15, from 1704 to 1604, he raced the best in the world and he got a bronze medal. It was so exciting. The whole school was in front of this black and white TV. I didn't know what the Olympic Games was, but Norman May was commentating. And it was such an exciting event. And it was so much excitement in the room that I made a promise to myself that day. I didn't know what the Olympic Games was, but I was going to get Norman May to talk about me just like that somehow. And that's where the dream started. That's where it started. And by the time I was 14, I turned out to be, I'd built myself up to be the under 14 Central Queensland 200 freestyle champion. I could stop my speech there, couldn't I? It was just huge, okay? And, and so my dad could see that I was really on the way. My dad could see that I was really putting in the work. My dad could see I had some potential. So he got a transfer in the bank. We moved the 800 kilometres from Rockhampton to Brisbane. My two brothers, my two sisters, taken out of high school, follow my swimming dream to Brisbane. Dad bought a house seven minutes drive from the swimming pool. So I could train with the most brutal, strongest, toughest, and most winningest coach Australia had ever produced. You can put that photograph up, Michael. This guy here, Laurie Lawrence. Okay, and Laurie had the most brutal squad in the country. He was tough, he was hard, and he produced champions. He knew what it was like to produce a champion to go to the Olympic Games because the race I picked, okay, which is the hardest race on the program, forget the rest, the hardest, the best looking, the toughest, the most stylish, the 200 metres freestyle. 
I'd pick the 200 meters freestyle and the 200 meters freestyle takes less than two minutes. It takes one minute and 47 seconds, right? If you're good enough. And that day rolls around one day every four years. So this is the exam. This is the equation that I had dreams about from six years old, that I was going to swim one minute and 47 seconds on one day at the Olympic Games and beat the best to win the gold. That was the vision. That was the dream. And so Laurie was the guy to take me there. Okay? So I moved, the whole family moved for my swimming. There was no pressure on me from an early age to do well. I was it. It was good. And I walked into the pool, and it was 3.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Okay? And I walked into the pool, and Laurie's squad was set up like an advanced squad. It was all about vision. So no matter who you were, when you started in the Laurie Lawrence swim team, you started in lane zero with the babies. And with hard work and dedication and improvement, you moved up to lead lane zero. Then you got advanced to the bottom of lane one. And with hard work, improvement, and, and hard work, you got to the top of lane one. And that's how you advanced because the promised land in the Laurie Lawrence swim team was lane five. To get in lane five, you had to wear the green and gold for Australia. You had to go to the Olympics, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, Pan Packs. No one was allowed in that lane unless you had that green and gold colour on. Okay? And so wherever you were in the pool, your vision was on lane five. Okay? And we'd do 200 laps in the, in the morning of a 50-meter pool, 10K. And then we'd go to school for a really good sleep, big nap. And then we'd come back in the afternoon, 3.30, and we'd do another 200 laps. We're doing 20Ks a day. That was the, that's what you had to do. Now, as the under-14 Central Queensland 200 freestyle champion, thank you very much, um, I, uh, I thought Laurie should know me. So I walk in on Tuesday afternoon. It's 3.30. And there's Laurie standing at the end of the pool like a general. And there's all the lanes going up and down, the green and gold, he's doing all the work. And I thought, this is it. This is so good. I was peaking. And so I've walked in and I've stood over, you know, here's Laurie. And I've stood over here just like near the drum kit. And I've sort of stood there and he's thought he's going to turn around. He's going to welcome me in. We're lucky to have you. Get into lane five, mate. That's where you belong. And he just looked at me and brushed me, gave me nothing. And he's looked at me again. He's left me standing there again. I was there about 10 minutes and he's finally turned around and walked over to me. And he's looked at me, got right up close and went, what do you want? <laughs> and I said, my name is Duncan Armstrong. I want you to coach me. And he got right up in my face and he goes, are you hungry, son? Are you hungry? He even spat on me. And I said, I'm sweet, mate. I've had lunch. I'm ready to go. He said, you might be just dumb enough to win something. And that was the start of a nine-year relationship with Laurie in the water, and I've had 35 years of therapy because of it. But Laurie really understood what we needed to know, how we need to go about it. He really taught me how to be strong, how to be tough. The programming to be a great swimmer started that day, that Tuesday afternoon. That's where it started. And in swimming, it taught me how to train really hard, how to be disciplined, how to be, time, how to be a time manager, how to control my diet, how to control my behaviours, how to control my, control my friends and how to be really, really selfish to climb to the top of world swimming. And it took me three years to get into the Australian team. And I made it with that photograph. That was, that was the team I made, the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games, the 13th Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh in 1986 as a 17-year-old. I'd been with him for three years and I'd made my first team. And it was a big team. All my heroes were on that team. I was the youngest. I was one of five rookies. I'd never been to an international meet before. I didn't know what was going on. But I got there and I was in, on day one of competition in the 400 metres freestyle. And I swam my best time by about three seconds to make lane four. There wasn't any big stars in it. I had a really big chance, okay? And you stand there in this tunnel 
and everything you've heard about, the stories on the radio, television, newspapers, is happening. You're standing in this dark tunnel and out there in about 30 metres is the competition pool. It's lit up lighter than, lighter than day. All the lights are on. 13,000 people have shown up for the competition. This is your moment. You've got the green and gold on the back. You're doing your yoga breathing exercises to make sure you're not, your adrenaline doesn't snap on you. And I'm going, I'm just zenned. But everything's happening. And your coach comes up to you and he's wearing that Scottish cap. He's got face paint on and a kilt. And he looks at you and he goes, are you nervous? And I go, no, no, I'm sweet. I'm in my bubble. I'm good. I'm just breathing. He goes, how can't you be nervous, mate? There's 13,000 people here. I said, no, no, I am within. I am fine. He goes, no worries, mate. You keep breathing. You keep breathing. I'm going to help you. I'm going to get all these people on your side and off down the other end of the pool he walks. Just as you run off, I'm watching him go. The guy on the PA says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the pool deck, the men of the 400 metres freestyle final of the 13th Commonwealth Games and out into the light you walk. By the time you hit the pool deck and you come into the light, out of the dark tunnel, you're just one big goosebump. You can't even feel the tracksuit on your back. You've got the green and gold on and it's not touching you. You're on fire, right? You're doing your breathing. And so I walk out, walk out, and as I'm getting around the end of the pool, heading towards lane four, this screeching starts up the other end of the pool, 50 metres away, in front of this crowd. And it goes like this. Let the animal out of the cage. Look out for lane four. He's hungry for blood. <laughs> He's an animal. <laughs> He'll rip your ears off and drink your blood. <laughs> and on and on and on until I arrive behind lane four and 13,000 people now look at me and I'm sitting there going how is this helping and they're doing the lane assignments in lane one there's some poor Kiwi and in lane two a conf confused Canadian and so anyway there's these yeah, big great swimmers and, and they're coming along and this is your moment alright you're going to be on TV you're 18 17 years of age you've got a new colour in your hair you're looking you're looking rapturously great okay and you know you're going to be on TV right so you're getting ready you've rehearsed this moment you bring your adrenaline up you're going to be in the water in about three minutes it's go time you know you've trained for three and a half years to be in this team you're wearing the green and gold it's all happening and he, Laurie sco scoots up behind me in the grand skit and he yells at me I got him on your side I've got him on your side now when they call your name son stuff the silver you're here for the gold right Gold. And when he said gold, that was the end of my breathing routine. I was on. Okay? And just as they come, they go down in lane four, the fastest qualified for the 400 freestyle tonight from Brisbane, Australia, Duncan Armstrong. And I jump up and go, whoosh. <laughs> and then sat down. I thought it went well. I look around at Laurie and he's got eyes this big and he goes, you better win now, you moron. And the good news is I did. Yeah. yeah. That's the very good news. And I've never done that again. Ever. Ever. So this is what swimming really got me into. This is the environment that I really wanted. I wanted to go away and win gold medals. I wanted all of these sort of things. And I was willing to learn from anybody who would teach me how to be more selfish, how to be more driven, how to be more goal-orientated, and what behaviours drove that. I just wanted it all. I was addicted to more, more, more. And this is what Laurie taught me. Um, 
I'm going to show you how Laurie experienced that race I showed you the first time. Okay? So this is, this is the environment that I was in. So this is Laurie Lawrence at the 1988 Olympic Games on the sideline watching the race you watched before. Enjoy. Michael? I played that three times today. I love it. I love it. But this is the environment we wanted to create. This is the fun that we wanted to have. This is the Olympics that we wanted to go and take part in. We wanted it all. And, and so at the age of 20, when I came home from the Olympic Games, you know, my life had profoundly changed. You know, and I wanted, I wanted more of all of it. You know, so from there, you know, life couldn't get any better. I was the Olympic champion. I was the world record holder. Uh, I, was sponsor, I was a sponsored athlete. I was making commercials. I was being invited to VIP stuff for the first time. I was on magazine covers. I was in the newspaper. Everything I did was interesting. Um, a television career was, was, was just starting and, and on radio as well. And it was everything that I wanted and I wanted it to be more. But I'd, I'd been programmed as an Olympic athlete that more is always better. And so I charged into all these careers and then the drugs arrived and then the alcohol arrived. And then the fast women arrived, and the fast living arrived, and the fast this arrived. And whatever I could do, I could grab my hands on and wanted more and more and more. And I was starting to build a career around that. I got married at the age of 21. I had two boys before the age of 23, and then we got divorced. Okay, so I was this full throttle fatherhood, okay, trying to work out who I was at the age of 21 and 22 with all this expectation. But I wanted more. Like when I was on drugs, I wanted as much drugs as I could possibly take. When I, when I was drinking, I was drinking and I was going to be a world champion at it. And so I was, I was building up all these behaviours in all these areas that were no good for me whatsoever. But my programming around what I'd learned in the pool and being a winner just wouldn't let me get off the bus. And I thought I was winning and I thought I was the man and I thought everything in my life was exactly the way it should be for a superstar athlete. And the whole time inside, I was lonely, I was confused, I was broken, and I was just starting to repeat myself. And so by the time I hit 35, we sang a worship song in the last, last two services this morning, 
and there was a line in it, you know, very convicting line, thank you, Lord, about how I was in those days, running around trying to be as much on television as I could, as much in the VIP room as I could, as much in the newspapers as, at the right parties as I could. And in the line, it was, it was, I think it was something like, are you sick of being yourself? And I was thoroughly, by the time I was 35, thoroughly sick of being myself because I was so broken in that space. But everywhere you looked at my career, I was being successful. Everything they said about my image was spot on. Everything they said in the newspapers of who I was, apparently, was this great bloke. But inside, I was absolutely empty. I'd been at war with my ex-wife for 10 long years. I'd met this beautiful girl who loved me. And all my mates was going, mate, do, the, do yourself a favour and marry her. And I'm like, how to go on marriage? It's not for me. I was so clever. You know, and this girl's beside me and she's absolute, a champion person. And so we were together oh, about six or seven years doing life, living in Sydney, doing, running around, doing our thing. And she couldn't take it anymore, so she left me. Ha, huh. she mad? She left me. Went back to Brisbane. I spent eight months on my own, chased her back to Brisbane. And she introduced me to this guy. Again, his name's Ian, okay? And my idea of mateship at this point was so toxic because I was still in competition and programmed for it. So I'd meet a guy, really good guy, great bloke. And he'd have just, and I'd make sure he'd have just a bit more than me. His boat was a bit bigger, house was a bit bigger, smoking hot girlfriend, a little bit more, a bit more money, a little bit of fame and fortune, right? And he was my target. We became mates. And then I'd work on him for about six to 12 months until I had everything better than him and I'd drop him. Awful, isn't it? How toxic is that? And I'd bounce to the next target. So I came back to Brisbane. I didn't know my girl was going to church at that stage. But she introduced me to this big fella named Ian. He used to be a cage fighter. We called him Biggie, okay? Big dude. Big personality. Had a big boat, had a big car, had a big house, had a fantastic job, had a great business. He was my perfect storm of a mate. And so, yeah, that suited me fine. We settled right into it. Okay? Tried to get in front of Biggie for about six to eight months. He's just laughing at me on the inside. I'm going around and around and around and around. He had this calmness about him. He had this strength about him, okay, that I did not understand. And I've looked at him one day and go, mate, what is this about? I can't seem to get in front of you. After he stopped laughing, he said, mate, you need to come to church. And I've gone, church? You must be a lunatic. And he goes, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Come to church. Okay? So I laughed, I mocked at it. But he took me to church. My girl had already been going because girls are very, 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 very smarter than guys. Okay? My girl's already going to church. And so we walked into church. It was a happy clap at church, like C3 here at Kiwana. Yeah, had a great band, not as good as this one. Had a karaoke board, it was great. Happy clappers. And I walked in, I hit over to the side, over on the right-hand side, not saying anything to you guys hiding, but that's okay. But I hit over here and I completely mocked it, went hard, reviled it, ridiculed it because I was so stuck in my control. I was so stuck in my control shell. Nothing on the inside, all bluster and bravado on the outside. That was me, sitting over here, having a go at everybody, getting into it, right? Feeling awful, mocking it. But I had to come back next week, and next week, and next week. And about six weeks in, I'm sitting over here, 
and my girl is like getting right into it. I'm sitting over here and this presence comes upon me. You can put that up, please, Michael. This presence comes upon me. Right? It's something I've never felt before, ever. And it was love, his love. I'd never permitted love. Love wasn't part of the control mechanism. It wasn't part of what I needed in my life. It wasn't part of it. My idea of love was awful. You know, manipulation, using, getting ahead, being in competition, moving ahead, dropping. That was my love. And so this thing's upon me and I can't stop. And my heart's beating like crazy. And then I start crying, okay? And Becky and I had been together eight years and she'd never seen me cry at that point because crying wasn't part of the whole deal, you know what I'm saying? So here I am and I'm not a weeper. I'm a blubberer. There's snot and there's, you know, and it looks like I'm throwing up when I cry. I'm like, whoop, 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 you know. So I'm having like an absolute great time over here on the right. And my girls look at me and go, what is going on? I'm like, oh, I don't know. But it was this, God is love. And I ran smack bang into the Holy Spirit that day. Okay? And I could not stand it. I ran out of that church with my hair on fire. Couldn't stand it. Came back the next time, he's into me again. And I'm standing there and I'm shaking and I'm blubbering. I'm spitting on the person in front of me. Not a good scene. Not a good scene. And it really confronted me because I'd built my whole life around this image that I thought was me on who I thought the world thought I was and I bought into that whole thing of who the world thought I was and so here I am and he's just taking me apart taking me apart taking me apart and I realise it's him and he's loving me and I can't stop and then I fell in love with the next one mate I am the way please Michael and then I fell in love with this because this really goes to my control I could look at him and go right he's the way right I'll set a goal on that you know He's the truth. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got the truth. It's all good. And I was trying to get him back into the box. And when I'm reading this sort of scripture, misunderstanding it completely, but using it for myself and my own control mechanisms, I started reading all about the atheists. You know, the atheists who've read in a book and said, God's not a God. Jesus isn't God. He's just a man. And so I'm reading all this clever stuff and I'm really getting on the ball. I'm like, this is great. And then someone gave me, a very smart bloke, gave me a little book, tiny little book, grateful blokes, named More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was an atheist in America, was travelling across America doing all these lectures and got, and got tapped on the shoulder by God. And God pulled him completely apart, turned him into a, a great Christian man and he read the, wrote this little book and in it is all stats. And I was a stats statistic background with my swimming and so it just crushed me and put me back together again. And you know, Alan LeMay came to our church. I can't remember what date or what time, but Alan LeMay from Toowoomba came down and he did a, the call to the cross and he said, is there anybody here who hasn't given their life to God and wants to? That's all he said. And it was like a lightning bolt hit Becky and I and we got out to the front so fast there was like a rip through the carpet. And it's, it, it was, it, it scared Alan. He's gone, Ugh! And we got saved that day. And we gave our life to Jesus that day. We did. We did. You put that next photo up, thanks. And, and this, is, this is the miracles of my life now. Because that day I gave my heart to Jesus. Okay? Oh, sorry. That day I was saved by Jesus. I was reborn that day. But I've taken 14 or 15 years to give my heart to him. Is anybody feeling the same thing? That you get saved and then the torture begins 
to release your heart and let him into every single part of it because it's not easy. You know, you think you're going to be in this peaceful ride. I've been saved. Hallelujah. But it's not like that, is it? And so for 14 years, I've been trying to release my heart, get rid of the blocks, and he wants to flood me. He wants to get all these control mechanisms, just knock them out and fill my heart up with him. That's what he wants. And I'd love him too as well. But it's just going to take time to get rid of the program, and I've got to give myself that grace. But when I look at that photograph, thanks, that family photograph again, thanks, mate. Here's my beautiful wife, Rebecca. When we got saved, we were married within nine months. Okay, we stopped stuffing around. And we got married. So I stopped stuffing around. We got married. And, uh, and there's Ava, Noah, and little Isaac, my beautiful family. And this is what comes out of giving your heart to God, that he wants to get in and renovate your heart. He wants to get in and get rid of the nonsense, the drugs, the alcohol, the bad behaviour, the, 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 the wanting the world to love me for what I project, but not who I am. Okay, they want to know where I am and all that kind of, that's the world. But Jesus just wants you to know how much he loves you. And I used, to, I used to sit around dreaming about the Olympic Games. You know, you heard a little bit about it tonight. And I'd plot and I'd plan and I'd have this vision. And it's so small compared to God's vision for me now. You know, my life, when I look at it now, it's challenging. It's provocative. It's exciting. It's humbling. You know, to come to here to see three, to speak three times today has been a humbling experience for me. You know, to share my story with you guys and have so many people come up to me today and share theirs and open that door and see what a massive family we are for people who follow Jesus and how much support we have and how, how we build these amazing churches like C3 where we hear fantastic stories like Tyler's, Steve's this morning, where Jesus just comes in and ruins everything you were doing and puts you back together again in his purpose. And then his purpose and his drive and his vision colours your life in a different way. It stops you from being down. It stops you from being confused. It, stop, it doesn't stop challenging you. Okay? It's not always peaceful. But that's what the rigour of the Spirit wants us to be in. He knows how he's made it. So if you, I don't know your particular story here, but if you're here tonight, okay, and whatever's brought you here tonight, whether I've brought you here tonight, my reputation, you know, whether you're a young swimmer over here like this young bloke over here from Grammar or wherever you are, whatever has brought you to here tonight, I'm so glad you're here because this C3 community is a winner and it will help you with the answers that you're seeking and everything you need to know about Jesus and God, Okay. And if you're like me and you know you're not living your best life, like I've outlined, the life that you've been created to live, then you need Jesus, plain and simple. Jesus will never let you down. In this whole 14-year journey, I've let myself down tons. And Jesus, like a, a wonderful parent, says, you know when your kids throw that tantrum and they just like wig out, they have that meltdown, and you know it's just their age, or their sugar content, or, or whatever it is. And they just, they just lose it. They're just a big puddle of anger. And you just stand there and you just wait because you know they're going to take a breath soon. You know what I mean? And you just sit there and sit there and then bang, they snap out of it. And you gather them up and you hold them. And then they relax in your arms. And, you, and, then, and then that's when you realise they know that it's going to be okay. Okay, we are all like that. I throw tantrums three or four times a week, okay? And Jesus, 
my father just stands there and goes, are you done? Are you finished? Can we get back on track? Because I've got a lot going for you and you don't want to miss it. Do you understand what I mean? And if I can pivot towards him more than my programming from back in the day, if I can pivot towards him more and more and more, great things happen over and over again. I'll tell you about a challenge in my life at the moment. I lost my job this week. I've been made redundant for the first time in my life. I know, right? Me. Like, how good am I? Are these people crazy? In the old days, all the toys would have gone out of the pram. In the old days, I would have... But all I did was went, oh, it's disappointing. I've got a lot of work on at the moment that I wanted to finish. And then I pivoted towards Jesus. And I said, Lord, if you're giving me this problem, the promise you're about to give me must be massive. Because that's where the pivot comes from. Put that, put that last slide up, please, Michael. I want you to leave with this one. Because this is really important. Like weeks like this. But my, my spirit is now corded around Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a steel cable. So when things happen in the world like a redundancy or whatever's happening, okay, I pivot towards him and my core remains strong. Read this out with me. Here we go. Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries and all your concerns once and for all on him. For he cares about you with deepest affection and watches over you very carefully. Now, what's the most important word in that scripture? I'll tell you. It's the word very. When we watch our children very, very, very carefully, how much attention, how much intent is in that? And that's how our Father watches us. He's, he watches us very, very intently in everything we do. And so I'm going to ask Benny. Is it Benny? Yep. Come on. Because I want to invite you to give your heart to Jesus just like I did. Okay. I want, I want you to be born again if you're not. I want you to take this opportunity of being at C3 tonight and starting your journey with him as a Jesus follower, whatever that might mean to you. And I want you to be the example to your family and through the generations, especially your children, that it's only through him that we live and live our greatest life. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Can we thank Duncan? What an incredible story he shared with us here tonight. What an incredible man.